John chapter number 20. I'd like to begin reading at verse number 19. John chapter number 20, verse 19. We'll read down to verse number 23. The word of God says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here. I pray that you would take your word, Lord, the sword of your spirit, and uh, wield it deftly in our hearts and minds. I pray that you'd receive glory from everything that's said. And Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us right where we are, Lord, what we're going through, what we're experiencing and may you minister grace unto the hearers tonight and glory unto yourself. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this past Sunday, we celebrated Resurrection Sunday. And, you know, one of the tragedies is funny because uh, very often come Christmas time, we preach on Christmas things for a, a month and a half solid. Of course, you know, Christmas starts in July. So, uh, you know, we preach on it for about a month and a half solid. And oftentimes when we come to uh, the resurrection season, we come to Easter, we often don't preach uh, as much on the resurrection. Uh, I feel like, I'll just put it this way, we don't give it its fair attention. Uh, and uh, that's not to take anything away from the great truth of the incarnation. But i got news for you, without the resurrection, the incarnation wouldn't have meant nothing. And when we come to this passage of Scripture, we are fresh on the heels of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were to begin uh, at the beginning of this chapter, you would read the story of the scene there at the empty tomb, the angels uh, rolling the stone back and disclosing uh, that the Savior is risen. I'd remind you, they didn't roll the stone away to let Him out. They rolled the stone away so we could look in. Amen? Uh, he was already gone from that tomb, uh, but they uh, rolled it back so that man could look in and behold and have a foundation for their faith. And uh, we know the story of how that the women went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus and heard this angelic message, how that they run and tell the disciples and Peter and John run to the tomb. One of my favorite passages a little bit earlier in this chapter of Scripture, John, of course, is holding the Holy Ghost pen here. And, and he be sure he's, he's, he's careful to point out that when they ran to the tomb, he beat Peter there. Amen. I love that. Amen. Uh, he got there first. Amen. He outran Peter. And they go and they look within the tomb. They see that it is empty. John says this is his moment of, of confirming the, all the things the Lord had said, that he looked in, he believed, he recognized, he accepted that the Lord was risen. You can read other accounts of the resurrection, the intimate conversation between Mary and, and our risen Lord, and uh, so many beautiful truths that are contained in the Word of God that center around this day and the importance of it. But when we come to our text tonight, we don't find quite as glorious a scene before us. I've often thought about how we paint biblical pictures in our mind. And we sort of think of the Lord rising victorious over death and then immediately going, joining up with his disciples and it's business as usual. And they go on and they're rejoicing and enjoying each other's company. But one of the things you'll find when you study these days after the resurrection is that Christ in some ways kept a distance from his disciples. 
There are probably a myriad of reasons that, uh, you know, better Bible teachers than me could give you. But I would just consider for a moment tonight what this scene looked like in this upper room. The disciples are gathered there and, and they're not testifying, they're trembling. They're not, they're not rejoicing. But they're they're fearful. They're quaking. The doors are shut and bolted and locked. They're expecting at any moment to hear the uh, footbeats of Roman soldiers. They're expecting at any moment for the Jewish Sanhedrin to come bursting through the door to cart them off and crucify them just as they had their Lord and Savior. They're there and though they hold the resurrection truth, it doesn't seem to have gotten a hold of them. I thought about what their scene looks like, and I cannot help but but acknowledge that, you know, these men, at least some of them, we know Thomas was not present there, but Peter and John are there in the room, and, and no doubt others that had listened to the testimony of Peter and John, and probably they believed and accepted that he had risen from the dead. There probably wasn't much question in their mind that he was not in that tomb. John and Peter had boldly proclaimed that they had looked in the tomb. It was empty. He was not there. They knew they had not stolen his body away. They knew neither the Jews nor the Romans would do such a thing. And so they know that he's alive. But they don't know where he is. And I thought about what that must mean for them. You think about how the disciples must have felt in this moment. And I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. I know he's alive, but where is he? I know that he's alive, but where is he? You say, preacher, what does that have to do with my life? Well, I think if we think about where these disciples are at spiritually, we'll recognize that we've been in the same place before. We don't deny the testimony of Scripture. We don't reject the witness of God in our life. He's our Savior. We know Him. We love Him. We felt His presence. We've seen His power. But we can find ourselves in a very similar situation where we're not doubting what we believe, but we're sure confused at what we're going through. I thought about a few things they must have been feeling by way of introduction. Let me mention them. The Bible says it very plainly in verse 19, says then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. I would say this, they must have felt disoriented. Things had not turned out how they thought it would turn out. In fact, one of the things that you'll find is there is a barrage of misunderstandings that the disciples have experienced over the past few days. I'll not take the time to detail all of them, but you understand that some, if not all, of the disciples were thoroughly convinced that he was headed to take up a crown and not to take up a cross. And now here they sit, trembling, quaking in this little room. And not only that, they know he's risen, they know he's alive. Why is he not there with them for three and a half years, excepting just short periods of time when he would withdraw to pray? They had spent every waking moment with him. He had been their constant companion. He had vouchsafed his love for them. He had proven his care for them. And now when they need him the most, it looks like he's abandoned them. You say, preacher, that's terrible. You just wait a little while. You'll be there in life. I'll tell you something, man, I've been through things in my life and and there's people in this room been through things a hundred times worse than I've ever experienced. But I've been in places in life where I wasn't doubting what I believed. I knew the Bible was true, but I couldn't make that thing G and Hall with my life and what I was going through. 
I couldn't make it all compute and make sense. And and I just felt confused. And it's not that I that I doubted the Lord, but I, I doubted what was going on. Couldn't make it make sense in my life. And I just felt confused. I felt disoriented. I noticed not only they probably felt disoriented, but evidently they felt distraught. Bible says they've got that door locked for fear of the Jews. They feel as though they are in danger at all times. And no doubt they are just waiting for everything to come crashing in. Uh, this thought has occurred to me many times over the past few days. To them, it looked like everything had fallen apart. It wouldn't be long and they would learn to see that, in fact, everything was falling in place. And I wonder how many times in my life that from where I'm sitting, it looks like it's all falling apart. But if I could see it the way God sees it, I'd see everything was falling in place. But in this moment, they're fearful. They are under real threat of danger in life. Let me tell you something. We have as a society grown weak on superficial danger. And I, I'm not welcoming peril. I'm not welcoming persecution. But, I mean, we live in a day where, I, you know, the, the worst thing something that can happen to most people, somebody says something nasty about them on social media, and they just come unraveled, and that's it, and life's over. I'm telling you, man, I, Christianity is overbuilt for the world we're living in today. And a lot of the reason that the church in the West is languishing is because our Christianity is really built for harder times than we have to go through. That's why we don't love and value the Word of God more than we do. And, and But there will be times in your life when you face real danger. You might look at me and say, Preacher, you don't know. Everything could fall apart. It could go wrong. It could go sideways. It could all go bad. And I would say to you, that's what your Christianity is built for. And that doesn't scare your Lord. That doesn't scare your God. He's not afraid of those things. No doubt they felt distraught. And then I thought about this, and this I think is very emblematic of, of where they were at in their life. The Bible says the same day at evening. Now, if you follow the timeline, you know that this is earlier in the evening. And, and in fact, depending on your perspective, John could have. He's writing for a Gentile world. He could have been reckoning things regarding uh, Roman time. But to the Jews, the evening and the morning or the first day, and if it's the same day that those other things have happened, then it's getting towards the evening, but it's not yet reached the next day. And we might say it this way, the darkness was setting in around them. Let me say it this way, no doubt they felt defeated. In many ways, that darkness was probably symbolic of what they felt creeping in on their hearts and on their hopes. And they probably thought, you know, it's all over. We thought it was all getting started, but in fact, it's all fallen apart. It's all gone wrong. It's all gone sideways. And they probably thought, I mean, here we were just four days ago. We thought we were marching to Jerusalem to put him on a throne. And now here we sit quaking and feeling like it's all gone sideways. They felt this way until. <laughs> I love what the Bible says in verse 20. It says, he showed unto them his hands and his side. And then it says this, then were the disciples glad. They went from grieving to glad in a moment. Say, preacher, what could, what could change things so dramatically and so quickly? Well, the Bible says it was when they saw the Lord. In other words, when he showed up, everything changed. And I want you to think with me for a moment tonight about what he did when he arrived. Preacher, what do we need in those moments? What do we need in those times? Well, I think when we read this passage, we see the help for those that are waiting on him. 
You say, preacher, why were they in that upper room? They were waiting on him to show up. They knew he was alive, and they knew if they stayed in that place, sooner or later, he would reveal himself unto them. And just as sure as they counted on it, he did. He showed up, walked straight through a locked door, and ministered to them. How did he do that, and what did he do? Notice a few thoughts with me. Notice the first thing that he did. The Bible says this, verse 19 It says, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, peace be unto you. Preacher, what do I need in times like that in my life? When I don't understand and when I'm heartbroken, when I'm defeated and discouraged, when I'm overwhelmed, when I feel like I'm I'm losing at this thing of treading, what do I need? Well, I'd say first off, you need the peace of his word. What did he do? He came, he showed up in the room, and he spoke to him. He spoke to him. I can't emphasize this enough. You need the word of God in these seasons. You need the word of God. Listen, there's no substitute for it. There's no, no amount of philosophy, no amount of pontification, no amount of thinking it through, no amount of counsel from other people, no amount of sympathy from other people can replace the ministration of the Word of God. Get in the Bible and you'd be amazed how much strength you'd find. I I saw two things here that blessed my heart. Notice, first off, his place in the midst. The Bible says Jesus came and what did he do? He stood in the midst. He got right in the middle of it. Now, they thought he was a million miles away. But in a moment, he could be right in their midst. Say, preacher, how how does reading the Bible help me when I'm struggling? Because you might feel like he's a million miles away But in fact, he's right in the midst. I can't tell you the numbers of times I've heard people say, well, I just wish I could find God. Well, have you looked in his book? Well, I just wish I could figure out where God is in all this. Well, have you read his letter? Have you got in? I mean, you understand this is not just the written word, uh, but it's an incarnation as well or a representation, a manifestation of the living word who is Jesus Christ. It's, It's his thoughts. It's his heart. It's his personality. It's his character. It's his designs. And if you want to know what God thinks, and if you want to know where God is in the midst of it, get in His Word. Because He can go from seeming like He's a million miles away to standing right in the midst of your situation. I see His place in the midst, but then I see His peaceful message. He says, peace be unto you. Now, this is interesting. He didn't tell them anything about how they were. He told them what they should be. We often, when we're going through trouble, we want an analysis We want to figure it all out. We want to be told why and for how long and how God will lead us out. But that's not what the Lord tells them. He doesn't disclose anything to them concerning how their circumstances are going to change. This is a truth found all through the Word of God. You look at the book of Job. Probably no man other than our Lord ever suffered like Job suffered. And when God shows up at the end of the book of Job, He don't tell him about what's been going on in heaven. He don't tell him about the conversation with the devil. He don't tell him even how He's going to bless him at the end of his life. He don't tell him how all these things are recorded in the infallible, eternal Word of God. He don't tell him how He's going to minister to untold generations of suffering saints. He don't tell him any of those things. He just shows up and reminds Job that he's God and that that's enough. You say, preacher, should it be enough? It is enough. I want to say this again. Preacher, should it be enough? It is enough. It's not should it be. It's not should this content me. It's not should this satisfy me. It's it will satisfy me. 
And so when he shows up, you say, now, preacher, am I supposed to just feel better when he says peace be unto you? No, listen, he, he's not saying how you should be. He's saying how things really are. He's saying the peace of God is upon you. It is unto you. He's saying you feel like you're surrounded by enemies, but I don't know if you know it. We got all your enemies surrounded by God and you think that there's no help, but your help is here. In other words, he is declaring unto them not something he wishes for them, but something that he knows to be true unto him. That's true in him and in you. And that's that peace had been made through the cross of Calvary and that that peace is ministered through the presence of God. And as such, he's giving them an anchor for their soul. He's saying, I know you're scared. I know you're nervous. I know you're I know you don't understand. I I know you can't figure it out. But recognize that in the midst of all of this, I have a peaceful plan for your life and you can trust in me. We want the rest of the plan. But what we really need is to rest in his peace. And so I see that we need the peace of his word. Look at verse 20. I like this. The Bible says, when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. And then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Now, later on, Thomas would ask for this, but the disciples didn't ask for it. And it's very easy to assume if you just read the account of Thomas that that this is just something he did as a gracious thing. Just, you know, well, I guess if you want to see it, I'll show you. But before Thomas ever asked for it, Jesus offered it. He showed them his hands and his side. Now, why would he do this? Why would a person do such a thing? Well, it was proof. And what they needed to see was not only the piece of his word, but the proof of his wounds. He wanted to show them that he was who they thought he was and that he was who he declared himself to be. What did these wounds prove? Well, I would say, number one, it was proof of his life. He wanted them to understand that he was this same Jesus. He was the one that had walked. He had not abandoned them. He was the one that had walked with them, that had provided for them, that had protected them. He had not left them alone. He had not abandoned them. In fact, he had passed through death's dark valley. He had he had knocked death off of his throne and kicked the stone away from the tomb and walked out victorious so he could stand there in front of them and show them that he had defeated every enemy they could ever face. They needed to see that he was victorious and that the problems they were facing were, they paled in comparison to the problems he had already conquered. He said, preacher, my problems are so big. And I know they look that way to you and they might look that way to me relative to what other people are going through. They may be that big, but they are nothing compared to things he has already overcome. And they needed to understand, hey, listen, he had come out victorious on the other side, it was proof of his life. But then I thought to myself this, it's proof of his love. Why did he show him to him? He was saying, not just it's me, but he was saying, look what I did for you. Look what I did for you. You say I don't care about you, but look what I did for you. You say I abandoned you, but look what I did for you. I didn't abandon you on the cross when I could have called 10,000 angels. Why would I abandon you now? And they needed to understand that in spite of their circumstances, the love of God is unshakable. We interpret love in a very circumstantial way. We think people love us when they do good things to us. We imagine and assume people don't love us when they do bad things to us. And I will tell you this, that there may be some truth to that in the regards to human relationships. It's true that, you know, we love not only in word, but in deed and in truth. But understand, there's going to be times that you're going to look at things and, and, 
God's faithfulness will look like failure. God's love will look like looseness. There's going to be times when you will look at the things that God does and because you don't see them the way God sees them, because you don't know the end from the beginning, because you've not seen... Hey, listen, Solomon, one of the wisest things he ever said is the end of a matter is better than the beginning. You've not seen the end of what God's going to do. How many hopeless situations has God turned to His glory and to your good that you had to, with chagrined face, say, boy, I... Lord, I didn't trust you, but look what you did with it. And we, we think if our circumstances change, well, God's, God's changed. But the truth is, God never changes. And he wanted to show them, you think I've left you, but I've not left you. I love you. I, they needed the proof of his wounds. But then look at verse 21. The Bible says this, Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. You know what they needed? They needed the purpose of his calling. They needed to know that what they were going through was not misfortune, was not bad luck. It was not the machinations of men or the conspiracy of evil beings, but rather that what they were going through was appointed of their heavenly father. They need to understand they could meet it with that same faith and boldness. In other words, he wants them to know that they are called. And I jotted these two things down, one for the same reason. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. There's two ways that we could take that. One is that we are sent with the same purpose. That we're sent with the same reason. Now, remember, this is not somebody that has just set aside a crown. This is somebody that has just climbed off of a cross. This is not somebody that just a day earlier was shrouded in glory, but was shrouded in grave clothes. And he has gone through much suffering. And he's reminding them that this life, it's not one of laying ourselves up in the lap of luxury and enjoyment. And God doesn't want us to have a miserable life, mind you, but understand that we got a heaven after this. <laughs> We've got a heaven after this. Preacher, my life's so miserable. Well, hold on, because we got a heaven after this. And it's a lot longer than this life is. And so we are not here for our glory, but we're here for his glory. And we shouldn't be surprised when in the pursuit of his glory, there are times when we have to go through difficulty. They're sent with the same for the same reason. But then I, I think there's a second way we could understand this. As my father hath sent me, even so send I you. I would say we're sent with the same resources. He's saying the same way my father sent me out, he's sending you out. He will go on here in a few moments to breathe on them and they'll receive the Holy Ghost. They'll be empowered with that same divine power that enabled Christ to minister to the world around him. And, you know, you can believe what you want, but my Bible says in John chapter 2, this beginning of miracles did Christ at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. He, he didn't do any miracles until that moment. And it wasn't until after he had been baptized in the River Jordan and the Spirit of God descended upon him in the likeness of a dove. Now, let me be abundantly clear. He has always been, for every moment of time and outside of time, he has always been 100% divine God. He has never been limited in his power, but he pur purposefully restrained himself such that he did not minister until after that public dissension of the Holy Spirit upon him at the River Jordan. We see a, a similar thought in Luke chapter 4 when he's tempted of the devil. And he could have spoke him out of existence. He had spoken him into existence. But instead, he restrains himself to resting upon the authority of the Word of God. You say, preacher, what was he doing? He was limiting himself that he might walk through this world in a similar fashion to how you and I would do And he's once again reiterating to them, I'm not sending you out there without what you need. 
I'm not sending you out there without the strength. I'm not sending. We we don't. If we think mm, if we don't feel strength, we think we don't have strength. But He gives us strength day by day. He gives us strength, and and He's telling them, listen, I'm not sending you out there helpless. I'm sending you out there in the same way that my Father sent me. Notice verse 22. I'll give you another one. The Bible says this, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, there's a lot of things we could say about this passage, but I would just note it in this practical way. You say, Preacher, what do I need in these times? Well, you need the peace of his word. You need the proof of his wounds. You need the purpose of his calling. But you also need the presence and power of his spirit. Now, you're going to say, well, preacher, I'm born again in this New Testament dispensation of grace. I have the Spirit of God, and I'm aware of that. I believe that a million percent. I believe every person, when they're born again, instantaneously receives the Holy Spirit of God to take up residence in their life. But I would say this, that very often we don't avail ourselves of the strength and comfort that He provides. Why did, why did he give them the Spirit of God in this moment? Theologians would have probably better answers than I'll give, but just think with me about this for a moment. I think in doing so, he was giving life to the weary. They were ready to give up. And so he put something in them that don't ever give up. <laughs> they were ready to quit. And so he put something in them that don't never quit. And you say, well, preacher, I just I I feel like I can't go on. I feel like I'm going to quit. And you may decide to do that. But I don't know if you realize this. God ain't going to quit. And he ain't going to let you quit either. (laughs) Jeremiah tried to quit. He tried to say he tried to hang it up, say, I'm not going to do it anymore. And and eventually he just had to get back into it because he said the word of God burned like a fire in my bones. Listen, we sometimes presume too much. You say, preacher, I'll just lay down and die. Yeah, Elijah tried that and an angel come by and kicked him in the head and said, get up and go on. The journey is too great for thee. Say, preacher, I'll just quit. But God ain't going to quit. And I'll tell you something, he won't let us quit either. Yeah. Now, he won't do that through uh, beating us over the head. He won't kick us in the head like he did Elijah. At least I don't think he will. <laughs> uh, but he'll give, us, he'll give us the life that we need. It was life for the weary, but then it was strength for the weak. He didn't just want to rejuvenate them, but he wanted to equip them with the strength they would need to go on. I'll tell you this, the Peter that stood at the day of Pentecost would have never done what he did had it not been for this moment. And I know sometimes we feel like, well, preacher, it's just all over. It's just all over. But you'd be amazed how much there is to come after this. You'd be amazed what God wants to do in your life. You'd be amazed how much more God can do in your life. You say, preacher, it's done. It's over. I, I can't go on. I can't finish my course. Uh, you say, preacher, I, I just, I, there, there's, I don't have it within me. You do have it within you. It's not of you, but it is in you. Because he is in you. And you're not going to get strength to leap tall buildings. That ain't how it works. But you do get strength to endure with long suffering and all patience. You do get strength to take. You don't get strength to jump over your problems. But you do get strength to take the next step through them. And to just keep on going and serving the Lord and being faithful to God and living for the Lord. He will give you the strength if you'll keep on going forward. When I read this passage, I'm comforted, especially up to about this verse or the next one. But there's an interesting passage that follows. Look with me at verse 24. Read down to verse 29 with me. The Bible says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. That's a good reason to stay with God's people. 
Because he was not with them when Jesus came. It's always amazing to me. I've known people throughout the years. I might just preach for a moment on this. I've known people throughout the years that weren't faithful to church and then wanted to complain how nothing ever happened at church. The truth is, stuff happened at church all the time. They just weren't ever there for it. I mean, don't be surprised. I mean, Jesus goes to church. If you want to meet him somewhere, come to church. And if you don't ever go to church, don't be surprised when you and him never bump into each other. All right? Didymus, he had forsaken the people of God, and, and so he was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. They turned around, walked out the door. The Bible says after eight days, eight days, after eight days again his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas. I've had some messages preached at me like that. <laughs> he turned and looked at Thomas. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. By the way, this is interesting. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. What he thought he needed was not what he needed. You listen to me? He thought he needed to feel him, but what he really needed was faith in him. And you think feeling him is going to make things better, but really faith in him is what will make things better. He thought, but he never did. He never did reach in and touch those nail prints or, or that spear print. He never did do that. When, when he saw the Lord, he said, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. That's a comforting passage in some ways. But there's a phrase that bothers me. I don't know if you noticed it, but it, it bothered me when I read this. And it's this phrase in verse 26. After eight days. Eight days Thomas spent agonizing when he didn't have to agonize. Eight days he spent tormented when he didn't have to be tormented. For eight days he suffered when if he had just been where he would have expected the Lord to be, he could have got help eight days earlier. I, I Think with me, and this isn't even really, it's isn't even a point, all right? So don't even think it is. It's not even part of the preaching, all right? But think with me for just about two minutes about the hopelessness of those wandering. Hey, there's help for those that are waiting to get help. But there's hopelessness for those that go wandering. In other words, if you won't come to the Lord for help, you won't get help. If you'll come to Him, you'll get help. But if you won't, you'll wander about for eight days in misery and despair. I thought about what that meant. I, I, and it really it breaks my heart. I thought about the tears that He needlessly wept. Eight days he walked around thinking God was dead. Eight days he walked around thinking that his master was slain. Eight days he walked around thinking he was never going to see Jesus again. He didn't have to. I think to myself about times when because I'm stubborn, because I won't come to the Lord, because I won't let my heart break before him, because I won't pour myself out unto him, that I don't feel his presence and I don't sense his strength and I don't experience his glory because I'm unwilling to go to him. And, and the tears that I've wept that I didn't have to weep. The other disciples weren't weeping. They were worshiping those days. But he was weeping and he didn't have to. 
I thought about the tears that he needlessly wept. And then I, I thought about the, the tragedy, the tragedy that he needlessly worried. <laughs> Whenever they're gathered there in the, in, in, in the earlier passage, they're locked in. They're, they got everybody locked out. They're scared to death that they're going to be killed. And for eight days, Thomas went on worrying. Where am I going to go next? What am I going to do now? What does all this mean? What does my life mean? For three and a half years, I've followed this man and now he's dead and I have no hope and I have no life and I have no joy. What is life going to be like now? For eight days, he worried over something that he didn't have to worry about. I've spent a lot of time in life worrying about things I didn't have to worry about. You know why? Because ever since December 1st, 1997, I ain't really had nothing to worry about. Because my life is in the hands of a perfect God. But he went eight days worrying. And then I thought about this. I thought about the time that he needlessly wasted. Think about all the conversations they must have had, the disciples, one with another. And I don't want to lay this at his feet because God's perfect in his counsels and there were good righteous men whom God never used to pin down a, a, a word of Scripture. But, you know, God would use John to later on pin down Scripture. John was in that room. God would use Peter to pin down Scripture. Peter was in that room. God would use John Mark, who may have been in that room. We don't know. But his uncle Peter was and had an influence on his life. And God would use Matthew to pin down Scripture. And he was in that room. But Thomas wrote no gospel. Thomas wrote no epistle. I wonder how much they spent, how much time they spent talking about what the last three and a half years had been like during those eight days. You know, there's several reasons that the four Gospels agree with each other. and One of them is because they are authored by the Holy Spirit of God. But I don't think that that God negated the fact that these men, at least three of them, would have spent time in that room discussing, comparing what had happened, relating things. This one had forgot, but this one had remembered and sharing and worshiping and growing in, in knowledge and in grace. For eight days they spent fellowshipping with each other. But not Thomas. I'd say this, that those eight days were the worst spent time of his entire life. Can I tell you, there's no greater waste of time than living out of the will of God and living out of fellowship with the Lord. Preacher, I just, you know, I just want to get through it. You need to quit worrying about getting through it and start worrying about getting to him in it. He'll get you through it when it's time to get through it. And and, and listen, I know that's hard to hear and and it's hard for me to say because I don't want you to have to go through suffering and trials. I don't want me to have to go through them. But I will tell you this, if I if I pluck you out of them, I might rob you of something far greater than what I'd give you. But a perfect God whose whose hands are wounded for you, whose side is wounded for you. A perfect God that climbed on the cross of Calvary because he loved you that much is in control of your life. You can trust him with it. Tell you this, he's got what we need, but we're going to have to come to him for it. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play, the altar's open. And uh, I preach my message. I'm not going to preach anymore. But if God has spoken to your heart about some matter, I encourage you to meet him in the altar. Don't wait eight days. Don't wait eight minutes. Meet him in the altar now.
Don't give worry and anxiety and fear and discouragement and defeat any more place in your life. Meet him now. Say, preacher, but you're telling me everything will be fixed when I get up? No, not necessarily. But I'm telling you, he has the grace and strength you need. So why don't you meet him down here? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify your son. We ask it in his name.